Over the course of the next few moments, I want to give you something that could turn into great conversation all afternoon long, could go well into the evening, and I hope you'll use it that way. This is just really a good question that can cause you to dig deep into who you are, and then it can give you great insight into who other people are. Now, here's my question for you, and again, this can be a conversation starter that you take with you all day long. Without thinking about it very long, I want you to make a list of five teachers that have greatly influenced your life. Five teachers. See what you come up with. Take just a minute or two. All right, now, to keep you honest, here's what I'd like for you to do. Would you turn to the person sitting next to you, and if you're not sitting next to anybody, go sit next to somebody so that you can do this. Turn to the person next to you and tell them who those five people are. Just give them their names. They aren't going to necessarily know who they are, but give them their names. Five people. All right, hopefully you got those listed out. If you didn't, finish out sometime later today. And and again, let me encourage you, if you're having lunch with other people, ask them who their teachers were. If you're sitting around talking this afternoon, ask the people that you're talking with who their teachers were and find out why they were significant. And I'll show you more about why all of that matters as we make our way through this. I was sitting at my desk, made my own list. I thought, I'm just curious. Five influential teachers. I blew right past five. Ended up with what I thought was 10. Somebody came out after first service, told me it was 11. So somewhere I lost count. I want to show you those names. Take a look at this. I know they don't mean anything to you at all, but here they are. Betsy Billings, Jim Coates, Hank Brandis, Rick Wright, Craig Tucker, Jim Dunning, Doug Ingmeyer, Dennis Glenn, Hiram Castle, John Polson, and Ben Merrill. Now I've made that list and then looked back at it and I started looking for common things within each of those individuals. And there were glaring things that jumped out at me. Let me see if they jump out at you as well. Betsy Billings was my fourth grade Sunday school teacher. Jim Coates taught our middle school Sunday school class. Hank Brandis taught a bunch of ninth grade boys in Sunday school. I was one of those boys. Rick Wright was my first youth minister. Craig Tucker was the second one that I had. Jim Dunning was a high school Sunday school teacher and youth sponsor, and I got into a lot of trouble with him. Doug Ingmeyer was the dean of students at Manhattan Christian College when Tina and I attended there. Dennis Glenn was a professor. He taught me how to teach. Hiram Castle, also a professor. He taught me how to preach. John Polson taught me more about leadership than any person I have ever met. And Ben Merrill brought all of those lessons together. So I stopped with those 11 names. But then I'm looking back at them, and here's what grabbed hold of me. Every one of the names on my list comes either from the church or the spiritual realm. It's very surprising to me. Not one of those names comes out of the public school system. Not one of them comes out of the education system. Every one of them comes out of the church or the spiritual realm. I was really curious about that, so I decided I was going to go home and ask my wife to make her list for me. We were sitting out on our deck, and I said, Honey, I want you to tell me the names of five influential teachers in your life. I knew pretty much the names that she was going to list, and she didn't disappoint me. She rattled them off very quickly. All five of her names come out of the public school system in Council Grove, Kansas, where she grew up. Those teachers had invested in her life, and they meant a great deal to her. They influenced her in some pretty significant ways. She was very close to some of them. She babysat for them. She took care of their kids. She ate lunch with some of those teachers. She spent time in their classrooms. 
So as we talked about that, we began to say, now, isn't that interesting? Your list leans more towards the academic. Mine leans more towards the spiritual. I said, make of it what you will, but I seem to be more spiritual than you. And we, we just, not really. We didn't have that conversation. But here's the thing. All of these people that invested in my life created within me a great love for the Word of God. They created within me a great love for the church, and they developed within me a desire to be involved in full-time paid ministry. I wanted to go into ministry because of these people. Now, that's kind of obscure. One of my earliest memories is going home after church and pretending to be a preacher. Isn't that goofy? We would listen to Gene Carlson, then I would go home, and I would try to be a preacher. So I, I knew from a very early age that's what I wanted to do. It was kind of between that and being a hunting guide. I wasn't sure exactly how that should fall out. Well, Tina's list created within her a desire to be a teacher. She went to school for that very thing. The list, we began to realize, seemed to fall somewhat occupationally. And I realized that in a lot of situations, that's exactly what it is. For the person who loves school, there can be a great desire for education. For the, the athlete, it may very well have been the coaches that influenced them. For the musician, it would be the music teachers and the people that invested in their lives that way. For the welder or the auto mechanic, it might have been the shop teachers or other people that they spend time in the shop with. Their list would tend to have names from that realm. We decided to test it a little bit. We were out to dinner with some folks last night. So I said, hey, you guys are going to be my guinea pigs. I want to see what kind of a list you make. They made a list for us, five names, pretty quickly. And we realized they blended or drifted towards the occupational, the things that they would do later on in their lives. Made me wonder about those things that create within us teachable moments in the presence of these people, whether that's my list, Tina's list, these people's list, whatever it might be. What is it that makes us teachable? So this morning with the guys that I pray with, I asked them to make a list real quick. And we went around the room and they did. They all made a list. And I said this to them. What made you teachable with each one of those individuals? One fellow said this. This is great insight. He said, I trusted them. I trusted them. That's what made me teachable was trust. Another fellow made this comment. It was the seasons that I was going through. That's why I was teachable with each one of these individuals. I was teachable within the seasons. Now, whatever it is, maybe it's our interest, maybe it's trust, maybe it's teachable moments. We have people in our life that have grabbed hold of our attention at different times, and they have taught us things that we hold on to. Well, the same thing is true in the Bible. It is full of great teachers. The Bible is full of great teachers. One of them is actually referred to by a number of biblical scholars as the teacher he wrote several books in the Old Testament, and in those books, he imparts amazing wisdom and knowledge. And at different points, teachable moments, at least what he perceives as teachable moments, he will try to drive home his points. He'll want to make sure that people are listening to him. They hear what he's about to say. Now, I had teachers like that in my life. Hiram Castle, when he would teach in different classes, he would come across something that he didn't want us ever to forget. So he would lay all of the groundwork and then he would say this, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why this matters. Some of you listen to Charles Stanley when he preaches. He has a habit of doing that same thing. When he wants you to grab hold of a certain thing, Charles Stanley will say, listen, listen. Well, the teacher in the Bible will do the same thing. His name is Solomon, and he has a way of telling us what I'm about to say matters. Make sure you don't lose it. Make sure you're paying attention. Make sure you grab this. Let me show you one of those examples. We're going to go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, 
We'll start in verse 1. Here you go. This is his, I'll tell you why, or his listen. Pay attention to how he does this. Verse 1. My son, that could also read my daughter. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. Now, can you hear the passion in that as, as he's making this plea that you pay attention? Listen to it a little bit differently. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. What I'm about to say matters. This is a great plea. It matters. And it's followed by a promise. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Now that's a secret tucked away in the Bible. People have chased the answer to this secret for a long, long time. What will prolong our life? What will make us live longer? And what will increase our prosperity? Well, the teacher in the Bible says, you pay attention to what I'm about to say, and you'll find the answer to that question. The things that I'm about to lay in front of you have the ability to prolong your life and increase your prosperity. There's a great plea followed by a great promise. Listen to how he goes on. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. So we have the plea in the beginning followed by the promise. And then here's what Solomon does, this great teacher from the Bible. He gives us a path. And it's a totally different path than the world would ever grab hold of. He says, lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord and He will make your paths straight. We have a plea, a promise, and now a path. And the path is different than anything anybody else has ever presented. It's different than what the world presents. Tina was reading on Facebook this past week, or maybe she was listening to the radio. I don't remember exactly how it came about, but she heard an article that really captured her attention. The person that wrote this article or was speaking made this statement. If you are living only for this world, then you better live for all you're worth right now. If you are living only for this world, do it right. If you're living only for this world, get everything that you can from it. Because the time will come when you'll cross a line and not be able to enjoy things as much as you have in the past. I want you to think about that for just a second. There was a time in your life when every Friday night and Saturday night you wanted to have plans and all through the weekend you wanted to have plans and you were going to go out and enjoy everything that you could possibly enjoy. Well, there are a number of people sitting in this room right now that would tell you that you cross a line where those things don't matter to you as much as a good nap does. You've crossed the line. I can't suck the marrow of life out anymore because I'm just tired. I want to go to bed at night. And then from there, it's a slow progression. But it isn't uphill. For most people, it's that line that we've crossed that says, I can no longer enjoy things the way I used to enjoy them. This writer, speaker, author, whoever it was, was saying, if you're only living for this world, make sure that you live it up big. But there's a difference for Christians. We're not living only for this world. This is the path that Solomon's talking about. Lean not on your own understandings, but trust in the Lord with all your might, and He will make your path straight. Do you know where that path ends? It ends not in this life, and it doesn't end in the next. It just leads you to the next. It leads you right into heaven. It leads you into the presence of God. That's a path that every one of us ought to desire more than anything else in all the world. I don't want it to be about what's happening right here. I want it to be about what's waiting for me. 
We have an interesting tradition in our home. I don't even know where it started or how long ago it started. But on your birthday, Tina will make for you whatever meal you want. Now, that's true of our family, not everybody sitting in this room. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll help you out a little bit. Tradition in our family. So she makes this meal for you. You get to choose anything that you want. Goes with it. If it's goofy, she'll make the goofy stuff. If it's elaborate, she'll make the elaborate stuff. Whatever you want. It's your birthday. And then she was doing some pottery a few years ago, and she made a plate. It says across the top of it, the special plate. And she put some different things on it. So on your birthday, you get to eat whatever it is that you want on the special plate. She's made it all for you with you in mind. My birthday was this past week. Now, I have to tell you this. I'm the only person in our family that gets this, but I don't just have a birthday. I have a birthday week, and so it works out really well for me. So I get to tell Tina what I want all week long, and she makes it. Well, Tuesday, she was making the really special meal for me, my birthday meal. I was excited about this. We'd been out of town and not home on my birthday, so Tuesday was the day we were going to do this. She made fried chicken, pan-fried chicken, folks. That's love. That's love. And she made mashed potatoes and gravy, and, and there was corn to go with it. And for some reason, I wanted deviled eggs, so she made deviled eggs for me too. And, and I had all this on the plate and sitting right at the top of the plate. This was the, the crown jewel of the whole meal, a homemade roll. Now, I'm not talking about things that you went to Rose Hours and purchased. She made them with love. I fell in love with my wife because of homemade bread. I went to her house when we were in college. Her mother had made these rolls, the same one that we were having on Tuesday night. I had never tasted anything like it. And I thought, I need to be a part of this family for a long, long time. <laughs> so she made me this roll. And I've got the chicken and the mashed potatoes and the gravy. And, and I don't know why I do this. My boys do it too. We mix the corn with the mashed potatoes. Anybody else do that? Oh, that's, that's heaven on a plate when you got pan-fried chicken right next to it and the butter's melting off of the roll and, and I am hurting myself on this meal. And then I realized I got a piece of four-berry pie waiting for me. And I've seen it cooling on the counter. I asked for it. I said, I want the four-berry pie. She made this for our elders one time and the elder said she could do that every month for them. This pie's good. And I'm waiting for it. And the whole time I'm eating the chicken and the mashed potatoes and the gravy and the corn mixed into it and the butter dripping off the roll, I'm thinking to myself, but the pie is still waiting. The best is yet to come. I've got to make sure I'm ready for it. Folks, that's how a Christian lives. The best is yet to come. I want you to imagine everything that we enjoy in this world magnified by a thousand if God is the creator of the universe, and He is, if He is the creator of this world, and He is, if God is the one that created all that we have around us, everything that we enjoy, and He is, and He is the creator of heaven, can you imagine that heaven is any worse than what we're living in right now? Or is it a thousand times better? It's the best of creation, mostly because it puts us in the presence of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But it is also the best of creation because God designs things that way. This path, this path that Solomon's talking about leads us right there. The best is yet to come. With that in mind, every one of us should want to live just like Paul would write about in the book of 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified 
for the prize. Because the best is yet to come. Paul says, I will live in such a way, and that means righteousness, that I might not be disqualified for the prize because I want to experience the best of God. And I want to be in the best or in the presence of God, which is the best of God. If you believe this, then I'm going to ask you to say amen in just a minute. For a Christian, the best is yet to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we live that way. And that's the path that Solomon is teaching. But right in the middle of all of these things, this great plea that we not miss what he's teaching, this great promise that what he's about to share will extend our life and increase our prosperity, and this teaching about a path that leads to righteousness into the best of God, he tucks away the meat of what he wants us to hear. These are the things that we need to make sure we remember. Go back with me to Proverbs chapter 3. And listen to what he says. Verse 3. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. That's the meat of the whole message right there. That's what Solomon really wants you to grab hold of when he says, My son, don't you forget what I'm about to teach. You hold on to this. Listen to it again. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Solomon is teaching that relationship matters. Solomon is teaching that friendships matter. Solomon is teaching that if you're going to invest in anything, you invest in people. You want to know the secret to a long life and increased prosperity? There it is, right there. You invest in people. And it puts you on a path of righteousness that leads you right into the best of God. It leads you into His presence here and in heaven. Now, this is not the only time that Solomon would embrace ideas like this. Remember, I told you that he wrote several of the books of the Old Testament. He wrote the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. A lot of people skip right over that book. It is filled with poetry. And because it is so poetic, a number of people choose not to spend any time there, but you really should. Particularly if you're married, you ought to read the Song of Solomon on a regular basis. Solomon speaks to a lady by calling her the beloved. She speaks back to him, or I'm sorry, she calls him the beloved. He calls her his lover. All the way through the book, that's how they talk with one another. Because relationship matters. There are a number of people, and I tend to agree with them, that would say that he's writing to the Queen of Sheba. Though they were never married, they had a strong relationship. Some people actually believe they had a child together. The lover and the beloved. Even when you get into the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon writes about all of the things that he has accomplished, you get into the book of Ecclesiastes, where he talks about all of the things that he has amassed, he will still talk about relationship. In fact, he would say that everything else is meaningless. A chasing after the wind, a relationship that matters. Go with me to that book. We've been studying it for a few weeks. We're going to keep going through a good portion of the fall. There's just great teaching in it. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. There are two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. 
Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, I want you to start with the story. It it comes out in verse 8. Let's look deeply at what he's saying. Listen again. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Now, here's what he's talking about. Solomon's saying there was a man who was so focused on work. There was a man that was so focused on his occupation that he forgot everything else. He had no brother. He had no son. He had no friends. All he was concerned with was what he could accomplish, what he could amass. It was all about work. You ever been caught up in your occupation so much so that you forgot everything else around you? Has work ever been so important to you that you forgot everything else that was happening around you? Happens all the time. We've seen it here. We saw it in St. Louis all the time. I had all these men in men's ministry that were so focused on work that they forgot to enjoy life. They were so focused on their occupation that they forgot to focus on people. They were so focused on their occupation that nothing else ever mattered until finally they looked back and said, what was this all about? Why have I done that? The ladies there were doing the same thing. They were going to work every day. Their husband was on his way to work. The wife was on her way to work. Both of them were so invested in what they were doing other places that they forgot to invest in home. They forgot to invest in their kids. They forgot to invest in enjoying life. Solomon is saying that's exactly what was happening with this man. He missed the point. He missed what really matters. Maybe when he wrote these words, he was thinking of the old Jewish proverb that says, a man without friends is like a left hand bereft of the right. It's a pretty good point. A man without friends is like the left hand bereft of the right. You see, relationship matters. There are four different areas that Solomon would call out to us that he wants us to understand. And we have to get these things in right perspective. And if we do, we find the secret to a long life and increased prosperity. The first area that Solomon would say we really have to pay attention to is the area of work. Listen to how he says this. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. For a lot of people in today's world, we're going to work solely with the idea of getting something for our efforts. That's a job. I'm going to go there. I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'll work as many hours as I possibly can, and I will get as much from it as I can possibly get. That's my goal. There are other people, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that see their occupation as a career. It's a a means of personal advancement. I'll go there so that I can advance in my realm as much as I possibly can. And then there are other people who see their occupation as a calling. It's a way of, of ministering. It's a way of sharing the gospel. And really, that's the sweet spot that you want to get into. I'm doing this because God has given me the skills to do it. He has blessed me to do it, and I'm using it for His glory. That's really a good place to be. But then there's a a number of folks that also, no matter what they or how they view their job, they still do it, perform it with an idea of delayed gratification. The time is coming when I'm actually going to be able to retire and enjoy life. So I'll amass as much as I possibly can right now, forgetting everything else that matters, and then I'll eventually be able to enjoy life. What a tragic place to be, because the truth is they forget what matters the most living within each moment and seeing the people around us. When we can see those people, we can begin to invest in them. Solomon would teach, two are better than one. There's a better return for your work. 
Now, that may mean productivity, but it may also mean that when you understand the relationships that exist within that environment, you really get to invest in what matters, which is people. Oh, do your job, but see the people around you. Let your eyes be open to that. Learn how to live within the moment because delayed gratification will always disappoint. Listen to this from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14. When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Delayed gratification doesn't matter. Learn how to live in the moment. You don't know what the future holds. So invest in the people around you, even at work. Then once we've accomplished that, it allows us to focus on the walk that we would call life. This is everything else outside of the work environment. It's the walk that we call life. Solomon would say this, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 again, If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Now that's a great illustration that comes right out of the days that Solomon would have been writing. People were walking everywhere. Nobody was driving a car. Nobody rode a motorcycle. Very few people rode horses even in those days. They just walked everywhere. And pits were everywhere. Sometimes those pits were dug by bandits. Sometimes they were just natural occurring pits. But here's Solomon's teaching, and it's not the only place it shows up. This is also found in the book of Deuteronomy and also in the book of 1 Chronicles. If one of you falls into the pit, if a person falls into a pit and nobody's there to help them up, that's a pitiful, pitiful situation. In fact, God would say it is so important that the person that's standing on the outside, if they don't pull that person out of the pit, they will stand in judgment with God. That's how important it is. So here's Solomon teaching that we need to have somebody that's walking through life with us. And if we fall into a pit, they'll reach down and grab us. Do you have somebody in your life that will always be there when you need them? Do you have a person that will meet you in the lowest spots? Do you have somebody that when you find yourself in a pit is willing to jump into the pit with you if necessary and maybe even just sit there quietly with you and then lead you out of the pit? I hope you do because that's what matters. Solomon says if you don't have that, you're to be pitied. That's a sad discourse on life if you have nobody with you. Maybe you've heard the story about the man who was out for a walk and he was met by a thief on his walk. That thief had a mask over his face and he got a hold of him at gunpoint, took him back to his house. He wanted to come into the man's house, so the man let him in. Of course he would because he's being held at gunpoint. They looked around at everything on the wall. They looked around at everything on the tables. They looked at everything that this man possessed. The thief handed him a bag and he said, I want you to fill this up with the most valuable things in your home. I want you to give me what is most precious. That man looked around the house and then he began to stuff friends into the bag. It's relationships that are the most valuable. And he handed it back to the thief and the thief, of course, was confused. That's a man that understands what it means to walk through life with people. I have relationships. I have people that are close to me that are willing to do whatever is necessary and they'll do life with me. That is really an important place to be. We can let other things confuse us to the point that we can't actually see that. Listen to this from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 again. This is verse 4. And I saw that all the labor and all the achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That's how Solomon sets up this whole teaching. 
It isn't the things that hang on the wall or sit on the table. All the things that we achieve or even the things that we're jealous of in other people's life that we chase after. It's relationship that matters. And you need people that will do life with you. And he goes on to this third realm. Really an interesting one, particularly in today's world. Listen to how Solomon writes this. Also if two, this is verse 11. Also if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, I want to apply that passage to marriage. It is not initially applied that way. But during the days that Solomon would write, he was speaking of people that were walking along the roads in Palestine. Majority of us will never find ourselves on a cold Palestinian road at night. So we're going to make a different application. Here's the way Solomon meant it to be. When they would travel places, again, they didn't have cars, they didn't have modes of transportation, they walked everywhere they went. And it could be well over a day's journey to get to the next town, so they would have to walk at night. They didn't put on a backpack with tents and sleeping bags and Gore-Tex and everything else with them. They would have to carry big, heavy blankets, and that became cumbersome in the journeys that they would go on. So oftentimes when they would travel together, they'd build a little fire, and are you ready for this? Then when they got ready to go to bed, they would lay down together. Might be two guys that were traveling town to town. When they got ready to go to bed, they'd lay down by the fire together. Huh, I have personal space issues. I just, I can't imagine that that is the way it works. When I was traveling for the Bible college, I had a good friend named Bill Minahan. Bill is six foot five. He was a magician at the time. Bill would travel with me. He would set up magic shows in the towns where I was going to recruit. More often than not, we ended up sleeping in the bed of my pickup because I worked for a Bible college that was not cash flush, and Bill was a magician who was living from love offering to love offering, so we didn't spring for a lot of hotels, and then there were times that we couldn't find a hotel even when we wanted to spring for one of them. We pulled into Montrose, Colorado on the opening night of elk season. We wanted a hotel room. It was 23 degrees below zero. There was not one to be found. So we slept in the bed of my pickup, for I believe at that point it was the sixth night in a row, and it was cold. We rolled out the sleeping bags, we climbed in, we tried to sleep. I think four hours into that mess, I woke up, or found myself still awake, shivering, thinking I was going to die, and this thought ran through my mind, if I just snuggle with Bill, I could be warm. I had lost control of my senses, hypothermia will do that to you. Quickly, they came back to me, and I realized we're at a truck stop, and they have hot showers in there, and all I've got to do is drop six bucks, and I can go get warm. So I dropped six bucks, went and took the shower, and before long, Bill came in there too, and I said, Bill, how are you doing? He said, that was cold, and I said, this is what happened? He said, I wasn't that cold. (laughs) Yeah, neither was I. Neither was I. Well, that's what was happening on the Palestinian roads. Most of us are never going to experience that, so let's apply the whole thing to marriage. If two lie down together, they'll stay warm. How can somebody stay warm if they don't? There is a lot of warmth in an intimate relationship with a spouse where you're doing life together. For the better part of 25 years in counseling, one of my questions when I'm just getting to know people is this, how do you sleep together at night? And people look at me like I'm a little bit crazy and I'll say, no, no, really, I'm just, I'm concerned about the posture. How do you sleep together at night? And I know that some people can't touch when they're sleeping and that's all right. That fits in its own category. But if there's great distance between you, it's not very warm in the marriage. I've told you this before, and it's probably too much information for you. Tina and I, when we go to bed at night, and it's my favorite time. For 25 years, we just celebrated 25 years of marriage. For 25 years, it's my favorite part of the day when we go to bed together. 
because there's a lot that's communicated in going to bed together. And when we sleep together, I have an arm under her, an arm over the top of her, and I drape a leg over the top of her, and then I just lock her in. And we stay there as long as we can until my shoulders go out. And then you have to move. Sometimes Tina will say, you know what, it's really hot, so maybe let's not do that. Okay, I got you. Or she'll say things like this, give me just a few minutes before you lock me in. Okay, baby, that's fine. And then we're locked in. You know what's communicated in that? There's a lot of warmth, a lot of intrigue, a lot of safety. It's a way of saying that everything is okay. That's warmth in a relationship to be able to say everything's okay at the end of the day. So Solomon's teaching us you invest well and you make sure that you're staying warm together. And that's great medicine, folks. You make sure you're staying warm together. Ask yourself, if you are married, ask yourself all the time, what is the temperature of our marriage? Are we warm? Is it cold here? Are there winds blowing? Is it icy? Is it steamy? What is it? What's the temperature of our marriage? It's another one of those questions that could carry you through the rest of the day if you want it to. You could sit down at lunch together and just say, hey, what's the temperature of our marriage? Solomon has some great teaching in it. Let's go into the fourth one. This is the last one, found in verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Now, he's talking about battle. He's talking about war, going to war with one another. In the book of Proverbs, Paul would teach, or not Paul, I'm sorry, Solomon would teach that a friend is like a brother and they are born for adversity. Friends are born for going to war with one another and true friends are willing to do that. Maybe you've heard this story. It's, it's really a good one. During the days of World War I, there were two friends that decided that they were going to join up together. So they went and enlisted with one another. They were sent to basic training together and then they were sent on to the schools after that with one another. When they were deployed overseas, they went together. They fought beside each other. They fought back to back. They were in the same trenches, the same foxholes the whole time. One of them was eventually mortally wounded and he fell on the battlefield. The other one was in a foxhole with their sergeant. It was all he could do to not jump out of that foxhole and run to where his friend was at. In fact, he tried several times and his sergeant would pull him back in and he would tell him that it was too late. It didn't matter. You can't go. Sergeant got distracted and he turned the other way and that man jumped up out of the foxhole and he ran to where his buddy was at. In the process, he ended up mortally wounded himself. He still had enough strength to get his friend off of the battlefield, so he picked him up, carried him away, and then he ended up dragging him the rest of the way back to the trenches, the foxholes where everybody else was at. When he got back into the trench where his sergeant was at, the sergeant, both angry and intrigued, deeply moved, looked at this young man and he said, what a waste. He's already dead and now you're dying. What a waste. The man looked back at the sergeant. He said, no, sir, it's not a waste. He said, how can you say that? And he said, because when I got to him, these were his last words. I knew you would come, Jim. And then he died. It wasn't a waste. You see, when we go to war with people that we are closely connected with, and I don't mean warring with them, I mean warring with them. They're right there with you and they are right there beside you. You have a better chance of survival because you have other people in it with you. Now let's take it a step further. We're going to go to the New Testament, the book of Galatians. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law 
of Christ. There is a spiritual battle around us all the time. And you need people that can see it. You need people that have the ability to see it in your life. And you need people that will gently come to you and say, hey, you're losing this battle. I want to fight with you. I want to help get you out of this. I want to help carry the burden. There's great teaching from the Apostle Paul that couples with the teaching of Solomon. You need people in your life that will go to war with you. You need people that will stand back to back with you and they will fight the enemy, be it physical or spiritual. You need people like that. And if you want to have a a long life on this earth and you want to increase your prosperity, those relationships will matter at work, in life, this walk that we call life, the warmth of the marriage relationship, and then in the warring relationship. You need those types of folks. But I want you to see how Solomon puts it all together. This is the last part of chapter 12, verse 4. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Some translations of the Bible say a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now in Solomon's teaching, he says that you need another person beside you in all those different realms, and then you need God wrapped around the relationship. And if you have that, that relationship will be strong. A cord of three strands, you have two people and then God, His Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, all one, wrapped around the relationship. If you are equally yoked in Christ in each of those relationships, then God is the one who holds it all together and it's not easily broken. You make sure in each one of those situations that you're investing in those lives, that you're investing the kingdom in them. You make sure that you have common goals and common interests, and you make sure that God wraps all the way around because He'll hold you together. In the difficult moments at work, God will hold you together. In the difficult moments in life, God will hold you together. In the difficult moments of the marriage relationship, God will hold you together. In the difficult moments of spiritual battle and even physical battle, God will hold you together. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken, nor is it easily broken. That's how you invest in relationships. Great secret that he uncovers and good teaching to help us understand it. I hope you'll pay attention to those things. As Solomon would say, don't forget this. It matters. Hopefully you were teachable and you could receive that and you can hear it because it matters. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, I am very grateful for the depth of Solomon's teaching. It gets lost on us at times. We've already covered this in our our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, but it, it bears repeating. These relationships matter. They're important. You teach us over and over and over in the Bible that people are important. Father, would you help us see that and hold on to it and live it? There are times in in our world where computer screens dictate relationship. Lord, help us move past that so that we can look deeply into a person's eyes, into their heart, into their souls, and we can develop strong, lasting relationships with them. And Father, help us to do it with you wrapped around each one of them. I pray that that begins with us giving our lives to you individually. Help us surrender, Lord especially those that have not. Help them surrender the first time 
that they might find salvation and a walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.